Hello, this is Ashley Chase welcoming you to the Mark Driscoll Podcast. For more content from my dad, Pastor Mark, Senior Pastor here at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, visit realfaith.com, where you'll find study guides to go along with each sermon series as he preaches verse by verse through books of the Bible, daily devotions, free ebooks, and more. Now grab your Bibles and get ready for today's sermon. Alrighty, I'm super excited. We start a brand new series today. We're going to take about a month and we're going to look at worship. And I really believe that this is something that the Lord wants us to individually and collectively focus on and grow in during this season. And so I'm super, super excited. And if you've got a Bible, you can go to Revelation chapter four. That's where we'll be. But the difference between Christian worship and non-Christian worship is very, very significant and very, very simple. In every other religion other than Christianity, we go up to God through your good works, your karma, paying off your debt through cycles of birth and rebirth, through going to sacred places and doing sacred things. You're making yourself acceptable to God and you're bringing yourself into God's presence. Christianity is antithetical and opposed to that. We don't go up to God, he comes down to us. We don't earn it. He gives it to us as a gift of grace, his presence. And so what we see throughout the Bible is God just continually coming down. There's a guy in the Old Testament named Jacob and a ladder comes down from heaven and angels come down from heaven. There are times that fire comes down from heaven. The Holy Spirit comes down from heaven. Jesus Christ comes down from heaven. And it's about God coming down to be with us. And we celebrate this perhaps most clearly every Christmas season when we remind ourselves that ours is a visited planet and that Jesus is the God who has come down to us because we could never go up to him. And while he was on the earth, Jesus Christ prayed the most famous prayer in the history of the world. He started by saying, our father. And one of the lines that he praise is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' prayer was that the culture of the kingdom of heaven would live among his people, the church on the earth. This prayer is answered in worship. As we worship God, we are inviting the king and his kingdom to enter into our life and history. So in this series, we're gonna look at how we worship in heaven. That's what we're gonna deal with today. And then we're gonna look at how do we worship as a church? And then we'll look at how do you worship at home with your family? And then how do you worship in your life as you're making your daily decisions? So we're gonna go from the throne room of God all the way to your laundry room and to your cubicle at work and how God's kingdom is to be part of every element and aspect of your life. And as we worship God, God's kingdom floods in to and through all of our life. So we're gonna jump into the book of Revelation in a moment in chapter four, but before we begin, you need to know that the book of Revelation, it's all about Jesus. When we get into Revelation, people get confused. Like what's the mark of the beast? And when do we get raptured? And you know, who's the antichrist? And everyone thinks they know, and no one knows. We'll see when he gets back. What is clear is Revelation 1.1 says, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the key to worship is this, you having a revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning he is revealed to you. That once we know who he is, we are prepared to worship him. So revelation is ultimately about Jesus Christ as the centerpiece of human history and the object of our worship. Now, the way that revelation is broken down, there are four different visions. And each vision gives us a report of what is happening right now in the kingdom of God. See, Jesus is alive right now. 
He died, he rose, he returned to his heavenly throne. You'll see that in a moment. But right now, there is a realm that is just as real as the realm that you and I are in. We are in a physical world. Jesus is in a spiritual world. We're in a natural world. He's in a supernatural world. We're in a world that is filled with human beings. He's in a world filled with divine beings and departed saints. And right now, the question is, what's going on in the presence of God? What's going on in the kingdom of God? What's going on in heaven? And this is revealed through a succession in Revelation of four visions. God shows up, shows something to John, and then he reports it to us. And he uses the language four times in Revelation, I was in the spirit. That the spirit of God goes from heaven to earth, from the unseen to the seen, from the supernatural to the natural, and then shows John what is happening. These four visions are uh, Revelation 1, 2, and 3 is one vision. Revelation chapters 4 through 16 is another vision. Chapters 17 through 20 is the third vision. And chapters 21 and 22 is the fourth vision. And what we see is Jesus Christ right now, right now is being worshiped. He is being worshiped. And so as we're getting ready to jump into John, John's revelation in Revelation chapter four, think of it this way. How many of you right now on your phone, you've got a home security app and you've got a camera at your house and though you're not home, you can look at it and you can see what's going on at your house. Visions are for them like video is for us. It's a way to see home when we're away from it. Right now, your home, if you are a Christian, is in the presence of God and the kingdom of God. And right now, Jesus is home and divine beings and departed saints are home, but we're not home yet, we're away from home. And so what we have instead of video to peer into our home is vision that God gives to view into his home. So what you're gonna see now is literally not just what happened, but what's always happening in the kingdom of God. So we start with the people of God and the presence of God giving praise to God. Those are the three movements in Revelation 4.1. We read this regarding the people of God. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So he's going into heaven. He's going into the unseen realm. At the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So what we get here is we get John and he is the one giving this eyewitness account of the doorway to heaven opened, and now he is in the spirit and the Holy Spirit has come from heaven to earth and has opened his understanding so that he can get a vision of Jesus Christ in glory. John was one of Jesus' disciples. He was the youngest disciple and he was the nearest and dearest friend of Jesus. Some of the disciples had varying kinds of relationships with him. So Judas tragically betrayed him. Thomas doubted him. Peter denied him, but John loved him. It says that John was the one whom Jesus loved. They were like a big brother and a little brother. They had a warm, loving friendship. They were very, very close. John was part of the inner circle of three disciples. He was there at the most sacred moments of Jesus' life and ministry. And at this point, we're near the end of the first century. This is decades after Jesus lived, died, rose, and returned to heaven. All the other disciples have been murdered and martyred. They're dead. John has seen them buried. John's the last man standing. He's an elderly man at this point. They sought to uh, murder and martyr him by boiling him alive. And he didn't die. I can't even imagine the physical condition of this elderly man. 
So they exile him to a, an ancient penal colony called Patmos. My family and I have been there. It's, it's a very remote island. It's surrounded with really swelling seas. I mean, it's quite a venture to get in there. Lots of salt water, dry heat, barren, jagged rock, high winds, desolate, barren, difficult place. Nothing grows there and no one wants to be there. Filled with caves and they exiled him there and history believes that they found the cave where John in fact did live. And he was exiled there. And so he is, he tells us he's there on the Lord's day. It's what he says early in Revelation. The Lord's day is Sunday. It's the day of Jesus' resurrection. God's people had for a long time worshiped on Saturday because that was the day of their Sabbath. Once Jesus rose from the dead, Sunday became the new day of worship because with Jesus Christ's resurrection, all things are made new. So he's there on a Sunday and typically he would have done what I do. And that is go to his church and love his people and teach the Bible and shepherd the flock. And he can't because he's in exile and he's alone and he's lonely. And he's not seen his best friend and Lord Jesus for many, many years, maybe 60 years, maybe 70 years. And all of a sudden he can't go to church, but church can come to him. And he can't be with Jesus, but Jesus can be with him. And all of a sudden he is in the spirit, he's filled with the spirit, he sees a door to heaven open and he sees Jesus Christ in glory. Now that being said, when it comes in general to the book of Revelation, there are two primary movements in the book and, uh, and I want to explain them both to you. One tends to see Revelation in terms of history and eternity things that happened in the past, present and future that lead up to the second coming of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead and the ushering into the kingdom of God. So those who see these two movements that Revelation is primarily about history and eternity, they will see Revelation primarily as a book of eschatology. Not to get super nerdy, but what that means, eschatos is the end, it's the telos, it's the goal. It's the conclusion and culmination of human history. So they'll try to figure out, okay, what period of time is this speaking of? When is Jesus come back? And what are the details regarding his second coming? A second way to view Revelation is not forward and backward, but up and down. And it divides into earthly scenes and heavenly scenes. And these are very significant. So those who would view it more as a book of eschatology would be in the Western church. Those who would see it more as a book of doxology or worship would be more common in the Eastern church. Both movements are in Revelation, so both are true. But just different traditions will emphasize one over the other. If you look at Revelation, not from the backward forward, but from the up and down perspective, you will see earthly scenes and heavenly scenes. And what it shows is that God knows exactly what's going on in human history and through nations and empires and wars and conflicts. And God rules over it from his eternal throne in the kingdom of God upon which is seated Jesus Christ. And as I was studying Revelation some years ago, I started noting, noticing this, this up down movement between heaven and earth. And so the, uh, the earthly scenes are Revelation 2, 3, 6, 10, 12, 13, and chapter 16 through 19. Those are scenes of the earth. What is happening in human history and God determining human destiny. 
In addition, the scenes that are upwards into the heavenly realm, which John tells us that he has here in Revelation 4, as he sees a door open to heaven, those uh, heavenly scenes are in Revelation 1, 4, 5, 7, 11, 14, 15, 19, and 21 and 22. And the point is this, the same God who rules up there, he also rules down here. This is the sovereignty of God. You can clap whenever you want. I'm in a good mood and you're free to join me, okay? I'm super excited about this. And so what we see is that we have our life and we're in wars and conflicts and peril. And as we look up, there's a God who rules and reigns over it all. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so these are the movements. So there is war. This is what you see in Revelation. There is war on the earth and there's worship in heaven. There's worship in heaven. And so this is the trajectory. And we're gonna see one of the heavenly scenes in Revelation four, but it's from a man who is on the earth. And this is where thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It happens in John's life. And I want it to happen in your life. I want you to live your life here, but I want you to see him in glory. And I want you to live from his throne down, not from your experience up. That's the movement of the book of Revelation. And and this correlates. So you need to know that to understand the Bible, you need to understand the fact that there are two realms. There is the seen and the unseen. There is the physical and the spiritual. There is the natural and the supernatural. It's where the Bible even tells us that our wars are not against flesh and blood, but powers, principalities, and spirits. There's always a lot more going on than we see, but God sees and knows all. And this correlates with the body that God gave you. God created the world and he created you. And the way he created you is a correlation to the way he created the rest of the world. You're one person in two parts. You're a physical body and a spiritual soul. Our world is physical and spiritual. The earthly scenes are about the physical. The heavenly scenes are about the spiritual invading the physical heaven coming to earth, fulfilling Jesus' prayer and promise. And what he says is, I looked and I saw. This is a vision. A dream is where God reveals something to you when you're asleep. And a vision is when God reveals you something when you're awake. This is probably for them a bit like us watching things on our phone. You look at your phone, you get to see things that you weren't physically present for, but you get to peer into. Well, this is thousands of years ago before technology and electricity, and a vision is for them a bit like video is for us. And he sees Jesus. This had to be an amazing day for John. He loved Jesus and he missed him and he, he'd not seen Jesus in a long time. But the last time he saw Jesus, he was a humble, marginalized, Galilean, poor peasant. When he sees him this time, he sees him high and exalted, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, ruling and reigning over all. And so what we see here is that the Holy Spirit, he says he was in the spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who connects the seen and the unseen realms. He connects earth and heaven. The Holy Spirit dwells in the presence of God. He is the presence of God. He is God and he comes down and he fills John. When you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are connected to the unseen realm. We're connected to the presence of God. We're connected to heaven. We're connected to the kingdom of God. We're participating in the worship of God. The connection between the unseen and the seen is the Holy Spirit entering into and living through the Christian believer. And so John says he was in fact in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, what's interesting is some of you will have a hard time conceiving of a world that is very real, but is non-physical. 
And what we're finding is that everything that God creates, Satan counterfeits. And we have a very interesting movement in human history that we're living as part of, and it's a great sociological experiment that no one knows how it will end. And it's technology. Facebook recently changed its name to Meta because they are banking everything on artificial intelligence, virtual reality, and the metaverse. And their explanation is that they believe that in addition to the physical world, people will be inhabiting a world that is very real, but is non-physical. I'm telling you that the counterfeit of being filled with the spirit might be living in the metaverse. You're connecting to an unseen realm that is non-physical, but is very real. Uh, now I'm, I'm sure because of his goodness and grace that the Lord will find a way to use even technology to reveal to people the person and work of Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you this, that what we are calling the metaverse and virtual reality, and what we are calling artificial intelligence exists in large part to worship and do evil. It will be a place that people commit crimes that they can't be arrested for, and they do horrible, despicable, and even perverted things. And what we're trying to do as human beings is we're trying to create a, a world that is invisible that we can participate in and is a reality for us. The opposite of that is living in the presence of God as the people of God, giving praise to God. This is the counterfeit. This is the counterfeit. So here we learn about the people of God, and then we're gonna learn about they're in the presence of God. So he, he sees into heaven, and it's the people of God who are in the presence of God. Revelation 4, 2 through 8a, at once I was in the spirit. Okay, so he's entering into the unseen realm. And behold, a throne, super important, pay attention to that piece of furniture, stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. There's only one who deserves to sit on that throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian colors. Around the throne was a rainbow. God first hung that in the sky when he judged the nations in the days of Noah. And ever since it's been ripped off. Satan steals even God's icons to give us an indication of his glory and justice. And here Jesus returns and he's gonna take it back. A rainbow had the appearance of emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. So big thrones, little thrones. And seated on the thrones, the little thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments, showing forgiveness, righteousness, and purity with golden crowns on their heads. This is rewards for faithfulness. And, uh, and this is rewards for life lived on the earth in glory to God. From the throne, you'll see that all glory goes to the throne and all authority comes from the throne, came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Most commentators believe that that is God, the Holy Spirit. Seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. We're dealing with a lot of typology, but it seems like that is the Holy Spirit, the perfect spirit of God. And before the throne, there were, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. John is straining to explain what he is seeing. He says, it's like this and it's as that. The point is this, that when we get a view and a vision of God and his goodness, grandeur and glory, human language reaches its limits to express that which is inexpressible. G.K. Chesterton some years ago, I'll never forget, he's a British author. And he said, there are really two ways to approach God. One is to try to get heaven into your head. The other is to try and get your head into heaven. If you try to get heaven into your head, your head explodes, it's too much. So instead you just wanna get your head into heaven and peek around. 
That's what John here is doing for us. The next section, and around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures. These are divine beings, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, total magnificence, are full of eyes all around and within they see and know all. So here's John, elderly, isolated, alone, broken body, convicted in exile. The Holy Spirit fills him, a door to heaven opens, and this is what he sees. All of Revelation are the four visions that he saw. And he's trying to explain it. And it's overwhelming and it's magnificent. And once you get the revelation of Jesus Christ, once you see Jesus is, all of a sudden you're a bit overwhelmed yourself and your emotions are fully engaged and your passions are fully connected to this magnificent revelation of who Jesus Christ is. So what we see here surrounding Jesus is worship. He is the king seated on the throne and they are worshiping the king. And worship here we learn first and foremost is in the spirit. You can't worship God without the Holy Spirit. You can't know God without the Holy Spirit. You can't love God without the Holy Spirit. You can't obey God without the Holy Spirit. You can't understand the book that God wrote about Jesus unless you have the Holy Spirit to teach you the book that he inspired to be written. And so he, John says, I was in the Spirit, meaning the Spirit of God filled him so that he could be part of this worship. In addition, surrounding the throne was the sevenfold spirit of God. He is the worship leader. The worship leader is ultimately the Holy Spirit. That you will see here the big thrones, little thrones. The father is seated on a big throne. The son is seated on a big throne. Uh, the elders are seated on little thrones. I'll explain that in a moment. But the Holy Spirit doesn't get a throne because he's active. He's surrounding the worship of the Father and the Son. He's instigating and leading the worship of the Father and the Son. And then he comes from heaven to earth. He comes from the seen, from rather the unseen to the seen realm to also fill John so that John can be a worshiper as well. The only way to worship is by the presence and power of the person of the Holy Spirit. This is where Jesus said in John four, if memory serves me correct, he said the Father is seeking worshipers. My prayer in this series is that he would find them here that he would find them here. The Father is seeking worshipers, those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. The truth according to his word and the spirit according to his presence and power. There's no way to worship without the Holy Spirit. And once you are filled with the Holy Spirit and once God's word is opened and you see Jesus Christ in goodness, grandeur and glory, something in you wants to worship. This is why we put our main singing after teaching how are you supposed to get excited about somebody you haven't learned about yet? How are you supposed to give glory to one that has not yet been revealed to you? For John, it's the revelation and then it's the adoration. He sees who Jesus is and then he celebrates who Jesus is. The worship has to be by the Holy Spirit. Now you need to know this, worship doesn't start with you and me, it starts with God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, that is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. It's the unique and exclusive view of God in all of human history. One God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, co-eternal, co-equal, sharing all the divine attributes and glory. We call ourselves Trinity Church in honor to that God. 
Now, the Father, Son, and Spirit, they have been worshiping one another eternally, eternally. They love one another, they serve one another, they bless one another, they encourage one another, they cherish one another, they value one another, they're truthful with one another, they're overt with one another, they're for one another, and they have been forever. God is without beginning or end. And here's the big idea. God doesn't need your worship, you do. God is not a dependent being, you are. So people be like, why does God need me to worship him? He doesn't. He'll be fine tomorrow with or without your praise. But you won't be fine tomorrow without praising him. We need God, we're made for God. We're dependent upon God. And when we worship God, we are connecting to the creator and the sustainer of the life that we enjoy. And so the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, they have been worshiping one another unceasingly for all eternity. And then when the Holy Spirit enters you, he ushers you into the presence of God because the presence of God dwells in you. Now you get to participate in their worship. And I was thinking about this. Um, I was praying for you yesterday as I was kind of thinking through the sermon. And uh, you, you need to know for me, I, most of what I'm teaching you, I've, I've never read anywhere. This is just, this is revelation to me. As I study God's word, I believe revelation comes from God's word. But as I was praying for you yesterday, I thought, isn't it magnificent that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have unbroken union and communion. They've been worshiping one another unceasingly for all eternity. And then the Holy Spirit reminded me, there was one moment that their relationship was broken. That the worship ceased and was replaced for a minute by wrath. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the only moment in all eternity where that perfect, unbroken, unceasing affection between the Father, Son, and Spirit was severed and broken. Jesus took your place so you could take his place. He died so that you could live. He endured the wrath of God so you could receive the grace of God. He was wrecked so that you could be restored. He was broken so that you could be healed. He was separated so you could be welcomed into this worshiping community. And then Jesus said, it is finished. And all the work of salvation was done. And their relationship was restored. And then Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. They're back together. God loves you so much that for a brief window in the history of eternity, he had his own triune relationship, damaged, harmed, severed, I'm straining to find the appropriate word, so that Jesus could die for you and restore you to right relationship with God so you could become a worshiper of the God who made you and saved you. So if you're here and you need to know this, you need Jesus. And you can't know God apart from Jesus and you can't have forgiveness of sin without Jesus and you can't worship God without Jesus and you can't enter into the presence of God now or upon the day of your death without Jesus. The most important person in the history of the world is Jesus Christ and the most important decision you will ever make is whether you receive him as Lord or you reject him as liar. 
And so here is the, the Trinity is present. John sees God in his glory. And he's, he's overwhelmed and he's awestruck and he's amazed by it. In addition to God being the first worshiper, God made us in his image and likeness. That means that we were made to worship. God is a worshiper. He made us in his image and likeness to worship. We'll get into this a few sermons from now. But the big idea is this. Worship is not just a Christian thing. Worship is not just a religious thing. Worship is a human thing. The question is not, do you worship? The question is who or what do you worship? Everyone worships. I'll prove it to you. The workaholic worships their job. The greedy person worships their money. The alcoholic worships the bottle. The drug addict worships the needle. The gambling addict, um, they worship the high that they receive from the risks that they take. The sex addict worships pleasure. The lazy person worships comfort. The overbearing mother and father helicopter parents worship their children. The person who is a people pleaser with fear of man worships the opinions of others. The point is this, we worship our way into trouble and we worship our way out of trouble. If you are worshiping someone or something other than God, you are believing a lie. It says in Romans chapter one, um, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator God. The categories that we looked at not too long ago in Romans are not, are there worshipers and non-worshippers? Are there worshipers of the creator or worshipers of the created? Everyone's a worshiper. The question is who or what is the object of your worship? And so ultimately, if we are worshiping something or someone created, it leads to slavery. And the lie is that it will satisfy us and it never does. This is why people who most passionately pursue their false God end up the most miserable and they're enslaved because Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says, you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. The truth is this, you worship God and you're free to enjoy the rest of your life. If you worship God, you can drink without being an alcoholic. You can go to work without being a workaholic. You can have relationships without being a people pleaser with fear of man. You can love and raise your children without making them the center of your life. You could spend your money generously. You can live your life gladly because you're enjoying your freedoms freely. This is where the first two of the 10 commandments set up this worshipful lifestyle. A lot of people look at the 10 commandments, for example, I think it's in Exodus 20, uh, the, the 10 things that God wrote down and handed to Moses. They think, well, this is about what to do and not do. No, it's about who to worship and not worship. It's about what to worship and not worship. So the first commandment is there's only one God. The second commandment is only worship that God. If you obey the first two commandments, you don't break the rest. There's nobody worshiping God that commits adultery. There's nobody worshiping God that murders someone. There's nobody that worships God and covets something. There's nobody that worships God and steals something. You can't worship God and then do something that is in defiance of God. So worship is an incredibly massive issue. It includes singing, but it's a lot bigger than singing. It's about living and singing. So what we see here is worship. And what we see is, first of all, God is a worshiper. And then human beings are made in his image likeness surrounding the throne. They're typified by the 24 elders. Those are the human beings. 
Now, we're not exactly sure who these 24 are. Most commentators agree that they are representatives of humanity. Some would say it is potentially the 12 tribes of the Old Testament, the 12 disciples of the New Testament, reminding us of God's total people, Old and New Covenant. That could be who these people are. But these are people who have died and they're in the presence of Jesus. Let me say this. The Bible has some amazing things to say about death. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To depart and be with the Lord is far better. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I know that there are people that are in the room or online and you've lost someone. You're wondering, where are they? They're in Revelation 4. They're the people of God in the presence of God, giving praise to God. They're worshiping Jesus right now. They're seeing him unveiled in glory. They're having a very good day. And if you love Jesus, someday you'll have a reunion with them in Revelation chapter four, in the presence of Jesus as the people of God, giving praise to God. And so what we see is God worshiping. We see his human family of departed saints, believers who have died and gone to be with the Lord. We see them present. We also see the other half of God's divine family. We see not in addition to the human beings, the divine beings. They're typified by the four creatures, wings and lots of eyes and sort of a bit like an animal. And if you're a person who's like, I know what it is, you don't. Okay, you just, you don't. You don't know. We'll see when we get there and it's gonna be awesome. But what these are is just as you and I are here, they are there. Just as we are God's people in the seen realm, they are God's people in the unseen realm. God has one family and one reality in two realms. Here we're talking about divine beings that worship God as well. And angels and other divine beings, they're ministers and messengers. And like the Holy Spirit, they go from God's presence to minister to people on the earth. He told us in Revelation two and three, that each church has an angel. In addition to a human leader, there's a spiritual leader. In addition to the pastor in the seen realm, uh, there is a divine being in the unseen realm. Uh, this may mean that even Trinity Church has divine governance in addition to human governance. This concept is throughout the scriptures. Angels appear 300 times in the Bible. 90% of the books of the Bible mention angels. Uh, it uses a constellation of words for what is called the divine council. The divine council is the place where the throne is and the human and divine families come together as the people of God in the presence of God, giving praise to God. They are called the divine council, the assembly of the holy ones, the council of the holy ones, the host, the seat of the gods, the mount of assembly, the court in judgment, and the heavenly host, which showed up to worship at the birth of Jesus. They came down and said, you know what? We're worshiping him up here. We need to make sure he's also worshiped down there because worship is between the realms. Um, oh gosh, I'm verbal process and my, my, I'm trying. So hang in there with me. Um, as they are worshiping there and we are worshiping here, the Holy Spirit connects the worship realms. This is typified in the book of Revelation with the incense. Maybe someday I'll teach the whole book of Revelation. I'm not brave enough yet, but I'm praying about it. So one of the symbolisms in the book of Revelation is incense. And what incense is, it's something beautiful and sweet that arises and it goes up. And it says that incense is the prayer and worship of the saints. When you and I pray and singing is how we pray together, 
It says that our worship goes up. It goes beyond the ceiling, it goes beyond the clouds, and it goes into the presence of God. And it is sweetness in his presence. As they are continually worshiping day and night, what that means is in the presence of Jesus Christ, every moment there is unceasing worship. Now, this does not necessarily mean that the same divine and human beings are worshiping continually. They may be doing other things, but someone is always in God's presence singing God's praises. Here's what you need to know. The same thing is true on earth. Every minute, somewhere on earth, God's people are gathering and they're worshiping him. And there is worship both in heaven and on earth, continuously day and night. And when we pray and when we worship God and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, he connects the realms, he brings the family together and our worship arises like incense into the presence of God and it joins with these divine beings and departed saints in giving praise to God. There's so much more that's happening when we're worshiping than what we're thinking or seeing. And the point is this, the band includes you. This is the difference between what most of us think of as a concert and worship. In a concert, the band performs for the people. In worship, the people praise the Lord. So when we bring the band forward and we ask you to sing, guess what? You're in the band. And we're singing to the Lord. They're not singing to you, we're singing and praying to him. So what we see around the throne is worship, divine beings, departed saints, and the Holy Spirit. And what we see as well are, um, are thrones. There's big thrones, there's little thrones. The big thrones, God the Father, God the Son. Like if you've got a family, right? You get together for dinner, mom and dad get the big chair, kids, little table, okay? The Father and the Son, they get the big thrones and then there's little thrones. Let me tell you first and foremost about the little thrones. Little thrones are occupied by the 24 elders. These are human beings who have died and gone to be in the presence of the Lord and they're ruling and reigning. The Bible says that when all is said and done, you'll stop sitting in that seat and you'll be seating in that seat. Just as real as the chair you sit in, there is a throne that is awaiting the children of God. When we resurrect from the dead at the second coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God will be completely the reconciliation, the reuniting of the realms. And so you're gonna have a physical body and you'll be doing spiritual worship to the Lord. Some of you will be ruling and reigning. You'll have jobs and assignments, we'll create culture, we'll travel, we'll make civilization. God's original design plan in Genesis one and two was good and we're bad. So God's gonna fix us and stick with his original plan. That you and I would make culture and we would exercise dominion and we would rule. So the Bible says, I think in Revelation three, he said to those who overcome, they will sit with me on their thrones. The Bible says in Ephesians that right now, positionally we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, three, that the departed saints will even judge the angels. So you need to know that all that you're suffering and all that you're giving and all that you're enduring 
is storing up your treasures in heaven, that there will be a day of reward and you will have a position of leadership and authority in the kingdom of God based upon your humility and faithfulness in this life. In addition, there's the big thrones, there's the father and the son. And it says that the son sits at the right hand of the father. And, and this concept of the throne couldn't be more incredible. This concept of the throne appears 196 times in your Bible. It appears 61 times in your New Testament. It appears 45 times in the book of Revelation. The chapter in the Bible that includes the mention of this throne, the big thrones, more than any other chapter in the whole Bible is Revelation 4. It's all about who's on that throne, who's around that throne, what praise and honor and trust and faith and glory and gratitude goes to the one on that throne, what authority, what dominion, what honor belongs to the one who is seated on that throne. And John, he sees Jesus. Last time he saw Jesus, he's a peasant in his early 30s. He saw him in humility. Now he sees him, glory. Let me tell you this. Next time you see Jesus, he won't be in humility, he'll be in glory. And the key to worship is the revelation of Jesus Christ in glory. A lot of times people think of how Jesus was. That's only how he was for a roughly 30-ish years while on the earth. For all eternity, he's in glory. He came into humility to identify with us, to suffer for us, to die for us, to rise for us, and return to glory so that one day he might pull us up to be glorified with him. Jesus is not bigger than you think. He's bigger than you can think. He's bigger than you can think. And John sees this Jesus, his best friend, and he's being worshiped. Now, what's interesting about this concept of the throne is that in the Eastern world, past and present, people tend to sit on the floor. If you've been to a friend's house, I had a Japanese friend going up, we'd sit on the floor to eat dinner at his house. When I went to East India some years ago, we sat on the floor, people tend to sit on the floor. This is an ancient Eastern culture, you sit on the floor. There were three different times that someone was allowed to sit on a throne. Number one, if you were a priest. And the priest would be the one who would sort of sit up a little bit to mediate between God and the people. Okay, God, here's their problems and their apologies and their repentance. Okay, here's God's word and here's God's instruction. The priest would sit on a throne in honored elevated position as a mediator and here, Jesus Christ is seated on a throne. He's high and exalted and he's our great high priest. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.5 that there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. When we look up, we see him as lamb. It's gonna tell us in the next chapter, Revelation chapter five, verses five and six, that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb who was slain. When you see him as priest, you see him as lamb. You see him as loving and gracious and merciful and forgiving and interceding and kind. The second person that would be seated on the throne was a triumphant, victorious warrior. After a battle, the leader of the war would be brought back to the people and they would throw a party and celebrate, call a national holiday. We're free, we're not slaves. You won, didn't lose. Your victory is our victory. So they would create a platform. They'd put a throne on it. And the weary, downtrodden soldier who had been at battle 
would sit. He would sit and he'd rest. And everyone could see him and honor him and thank him. It'd be great if we treated our soldiers the way, the way God treats his. Now, when you see Jesus seated as a warrior, he's conquered Satan, sin, death, hell, and the wrath of God. So we see him there as the lion of the tribe of Judah. We see with the priest and the warrior, he is lamb and lion. He's tough for us, but he's tender with us. I was thinking about it as I was praying for you. The last one is that the king would sit on the throne and the king would be exalted and the people would surround the throne and they would cheer and they would celebrate and they would honor and they would glorify and they would thank the king for giving them life and his kingdom. You see Jesus on his throne as king, he's, he's priest and warrior. He's, he's tender and tough, he's, he's lamb and he's lion. Um, let me say this friends, every one of you is gonna stand before that throne. That's the most important day of your life. And today you make the decision whether or not that's gonna be a good day or a bad day for you. If you stand before Jesus and you repent of sin and you receive him as savior today, as people already have this weekend in this room, then what happens is that is for you what the Bible calls a throne of grace. And the Bible says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, for he has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, we can approach boldly his throne of grace to find mercy in our time of need. Jesus died to forgive and love you. And if you believe in him and belong to him, that throne is a priestly throne. It's where you'll meet Jesus as lamb. It's a throne of grace and mercy. If you reject the Lord Jesus, you will meet him there as warrior and you will meet him there for judgment. And Revelation 19 and 20 talks about that throne for those who don't belong to the Lord Jesus being a throne of judgment. I'm telling you, Jesus is real, hell is real, heaven is real, it's all real. And it's really important that you're ready to stand before that throne, okay? So Jesus as king seated on this throne, he is priest, tender lamb for us, tough warrior lion to protect us. And I was thinking about it as I was praying for you yesterday. Jesus is seated on his throne. And I thought, I was just praying for you. And I thought, oh, just the vision of Jesus seated on his throne. And then God reminded me, there was, there was a time in scripture that Jesus got up off this throne. What would make Jesus get off his throne? See, when somebody sits on the throne, it's so that everybody can honor them and get excited about them and rejoice in them and celebrate them and encourage them and bless them. What would make the one on the throne get off the throne so that he could cheer and he could encourage and he could bless? There was a man named Stephen. He's a leader in the early church in the book of Acts. And there's a man named Saul of Tarsus. We know him as Paul the apostle. And he's overseeing the execution and murder of Stephen. Stephen looks up into heaven. He has the same experience as John. He goes from the seen to the unseen. He goes from the natural to the supernatural. He goes from earth to heaven and he sees Jesus 
as Isaiah did, as Daniel did, as John did. And he saw, and as, 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 as Stephen was dying, he used his final breaths to echo the Lord Jesus and to pray for his enemies. And he prayed that they would be forgiven. And it says that he saw heaven open and Jesus Christ got off of his throne. Let me tell you this, friends. When you forgive someone, Jesus gets off his throne. Amen. He gets off his throne to cheer, encourage, and celebrate. Because it breaks demonic strongholds and it sets captives free. Hallelujah. Okay? So we're talking here about the throne. Surrounding the throne is God the Holy Spirit leading worship, departed saints, the 24 elders, divine beings, typified by the four creatures. And it is the human family and the divine family worshiping together. Now, let me say this, this will be controversial. At some point, I always say something controversial. <laughs> We've reached that point. <laughs> I see here what we would call production. Production is sound, atmosphere, lighting. And for John, he had no electricity. He'd never seen technology. He goes into the presence of God. He sees worship and he's trying, it's like this and it's like, he's like, I don't know what this is. I've never been here. The production would include lighting, jasper, carnelian, rainbow, emerald, and lightning, flashes of lightning. Does this sound like a concert? <laughs> okay, we're, not, we're gonna find all the religious people in just a minute, we're gonna find you. You're gonna pop out of your hole. It's okay, it's gonna be great. In addition, there is audio, there's sound. And it says that there are rumblings and peals of thunder. That's the low end. In the Greek text, it's the sub. That's, trust me, it's what it is, okay? So it's the low end. Jesus likes the kick, he does. The base is up, okay? So John is in heaven and there's a lot of production because God likes atmospheres of excellence that are kingdom quality and he likes to inhabit those spaces with his people. For me, space matters. I don't, when we first got this old building, it drove me crazy because it just, it looked like an episode of church hoarders and extreme church makeover and it smelled like Satan's breath and everything was broken and it drove me crazy. I like, I, I like things nice. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be litter on the streets of gold. Your throne will not have a broken leg on the chair. It's gonna be put together. And so production is part of creating an environment where God's people are fully engaged at the multi-sensory level to worship the Lord their God with all their heart, emotional life, soul, spiritual life, mind, mental life, strength, physical life. It's a whole response of the whole person to God because God made the whole person and the whole person is made to respond and worship to God. So what you oftentimes hear in church is this. Oh, I don't know why we need all that technology, smoke and band and sound and lights and we should just worship the Lord. Well, this is how the Lord likes to be worshiped. Some of you are like, I don't like it. I don't care. We're not worshiping you. <laughs> I, I don't care. Like, Jesus isn't in heaven going, how would you like worship? And he's like, oh, hey, you, get your, you don't have a throne. You just got a seat, you know? And here's what I'm telling you, what I hear all the time from religious people, and I love you, 
because you're fun. <laughs> now you don't know that. But they'll be like, well, church just looks like a concert. No, what I tell you is this, is a concert looks like heaven. This is multi-sensory. This is lighting and sound and instrumentation. I don't know if there's an angel with a wing running the board. I don't know how this works. <laughs> right? But maybe we were made to be in an environment that was multi-sensory, that awakened passion in all of our being to respond in praise and gratitude and glory. And everybody who's going to a concert is looking for heaven, whether they know it or not. And maybe when we get together, we're not mimicking the world. Maybe the world is mimicking the kingdom because they were made for that environment. They long for that environment. And if they don't know Jesus, they just create a counterfeit. And they get filled with spirits rather than the spirit. And they get together so that the band would, would be performing for them rather than coming to church, being filled with the spirit and joining the band to give praise to him. I think heaven's gonna be a lot different than most of us think. Um, I was praying last night and God brought to mind this. So when you and I die or the Lord Jesus returns and the realms are reunited, we're gonna sing with departed saints and divine beings in the presence of God. And then the Holy Spirit reminded me last night, there's a line in Zephaniah 3. It says, when we get there, just, just let your soul breathe for a minute and hear this. It says that the Lord will rejoice over you with his singing. When we get to heaven, Jesus Christ will sing over you. Amen. The people of God in the presence of God giving praise to God. So this is the last section. And day and night, so God is continually being worshiped in heaven and at places on earth. They never cease to say, so they're singing and praying and celebrating. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The eternal, unceasing, unchanging creator God. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, human departed saints, fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns, power, honor, glory, finances, wealth before the throne saying, worthy are you. Friends, how many things have we worshiped that are not worthy? How many people have we worshiped that are not worthy? When you get a revelation of Jesus Christ in glory, you realize he alone is worthy. Worthy are you, are, very personal, are Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they existed and are or were created. John's book ends by telling us the end of human history. Let me summarize the Bible and then make an application. Most stories are told beginning, middle, end. Eastern stories are beginning, middle, beginning. The Bible is an Eastern story, beginning, middle, beginning. The first two chapters, God creates the heavens and the earth. God makes us in his image and likeness. God 
puts us in a garden of Eden that is the connecting point between the seen and the unseen realms. It's the place where God's divine and human family come together as the people of God in the presence of God to give praise to God. How do we know this? Well, Adam and Eve are there and it says that God is there. He's walking with them in the cool of the garden and a dragon shows up and has a conversation with them and they don't even blink or flinch. I don't know about you, like if I go home today and there's a talking dragon in my pool, I'm having a response, okay? This divine creature shows up and they're not startled at all because they're used to the divine and human families meeting there. Just like the four creatures we saw in Revelation four, a divine creature shows up in Genesis and they're not startled by it. And what he does is he tempts them to worship someone or something other than God. See, Satan was in heaven, Revelation 12, seven through nine, did not want to worship God, wanted to be worshiped as God, lost that war because worship is war. The war is always who we worship. That's the war. He loses that war, he's cast down to the earth. He shows up to our first parents. He says, you don't need to worship God, you can worship yourself. You don't need to be dependent, you can be independent. You don't need to be obedient, you can be disobedient. You can become like God. They sin against God and they're cast out. Another divine being is assigned an angel to guard that realm so they couldn't re-enter in. It's perfection and then sin and fall and death and the curse. The rest of the Bible is the middle. The promise of the coming of the Lord Jesus as the dragon slayer. The waiting, the longing, the anticipating of his coming, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And then we reach the precipice of human history. We're awaiting his second coming. John writes Revelation and the last two chapters mirror the first two chapters. Genesis 1 and 2, perfection. Revelation 21, 22, perfection. Genesis 3, judgment. Uh, Revelation 20, judgment. Beginning, middle, beginning. At the end, Jesus Christ returns in glory. He comes to judge the living and the dead. He raises our bodies from the dead, fills them with our soul, and we stand before his throne for mercy and grace or judgment and hell. And ultimately the realms are reunited when that throne hits this planet. And we're waiting for that day. And so John sees all of this in magnificence and glory. And in the middle, he peers into heaven. And he sees four things. Number one, the worship of Jesus Christ is supernatural. It's by the presence and power of the person of the Holy Spirit. Number two, he hears singing. In Revelation, there's at least 10 new songs and there's lots of instruments. And there's a lot of music and creativity because our God is creative and he's creator. And there's a lot of beauty because our God is beautiful and he's glorious and he's wondrous. In addition to that which is supernatural and singing, there is surrender. Throughout the vision surrounding the throne of Jesus, there is clapping and cheering and kneeling and raising of hands. It's a full bodied response to a creator God. And then lastly, there is full surrender. Before I explain this, uh, let me just give you an illustration. We were all made to be in the presence of something beautiful and to feel awe and to feel small. 
Everybody who stops to watch the sunset is looking for Jesus. Everyone who drives to the coast to put their feet in the water so that they can see the magnificence of the ocean and feel very small is looking for Jesus. Everyone who visits our state and drives up to the Grand Canyon to stand in the presence of something beautiful and awe-inspiring and to feel very small and for that to feel very right, they're looking for Jesus. John sees the revelation of Jesus Christ in glory. And what he says is, as others in the presence of Jesus see him in glory, they fall down. They get off of their little thrones and they bow down before the one who is on the big throne. And it says that they take their crowns, my reputation, my money, my family, everything I have, everything I've done. And you know what? I wear it and everybody knows my accomplishments and my achievements and they glorify me for what I have and what I've done. And I just take that off and I put it at his feet. My reputation is gonna be here. My money is gonna be here. My family is gonna be here. My life is gonna be here. My hope is gonna be here. Everything I have is because of the grace of God and the goodness of my King. Everything I've done is because of the grace of God and the goodness of my King. They lay it down. Because friends, we were not made to sit on thrones. We were made to kneel before a throne. And as I was praying for you, just this is a good posture of worship. And sometimes when we get to worship, people are like, well, I can't raise my hands. What will people think? I can't kneel down. What will people think? I can't cheer. What will people think? And the point is, why are you worshiping them? It's not about what they think. I'm gonna pray for you in a moment, but I was praying for you yesterday and this, this prostrate position before the king, it, the Holy Spirit reminded me as I was praying for you, there is a word in the original Greek New Testament. It's a predominant word for worship in the New Testament. It's called uh, proskuneo, and it literally means to kiss the feet of the king. Lord Jesus, we come to kiss your feet. We come to lay down our crowns. We come to get off our thrones. We come to say that all that we have and all that we are belongs to you. It comes from you. It's from the throne of grace. And Jesus, you alone are worthy. And so God, I just thank you so much that you send the Holy Spirit so that we can be delivered from worshiping anyone or anything other than Jesus. It just leads to slavery, not freedom. It leads to misery, not joy. It leads to death and not life. God, I thank you for those who have lost people that they love. If they love Jesus, that right now they're worshiping there. And as we worship here, there is a connection because of the spirit between the realms. And we look forward to the day for that great reunion in your presence when all of your people will enjoy all of your presence and give you all of the praise in Jesus' good name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you want to be a part of getting more Bible teaching out across the world, visit realfaith.com donate. And for more content like this, visit realfaith.com. Thanks for listening. And remember, it's all about Jesus.